Today we interview a very amazing individual who goes by the name of Tim Lodgen. Tim is multifaceted individual, very amazing, um, very strong individual, and I'm very excited. I want to read his bio before we bring him in. Tim Lodgen is a 46-year-old resident of Baltimore, Maryland. He's a former U.S. Marine and MMA fighter and junior Olympic boxer. He survived a 27-year-long battle with bipolar disorder, alcohol, drug addiction, and multiple suicide attempts. He shares his story of strength, courage, and hope to those still suffering and hopes that they know they are not alone. Ladies and gentlemen, you are with the Sober's Dope Podcast. I'm your host, Pop Buchanan, and I'm extremely excited to have an amazing guest today now. This man is totally a multifaceted individual. He has all type of things going on, but most importantly, an incredible story to tell. Our guest today is Tim Lodgen, and he is the man. A brief overview of the many things that Tim is into. Tim is a former U.S. Marine, so we want to start out on Sober's Dope as thanking Tim for your service. Thank you for serving our country, and that's an amazing feat, and we will get into that. Tim is also an MMA fighter, uh, junior Olympic boxer, martial artist, bodybuilder. You was competing either this year or next year, I know. We'll get into that. And Tim survived a 27-year-long battle with bipolar disorder, which we're really interested to talk about because Sober's Dope is big on mental health and recovery. And um, his recovery date is March 5th, 2021. Tim, how are you feeling today? I'm doing great, brother. Like I said, man, I'm happy uh, to be alive, first of all, sober. And I'm grateful I could experience another day on this earth, man, because uh, I, should, I really shouldn't be here, to be quite honest with you. Absolutely. And you know what, Tim? I shouldn't be here neither because the way I was carrying <laughs> on, I believe in some type of higher power. I mean, I call it God. Everyone calls it something different. But I know based on my own devices, I should have been out of here. So although we shouldn't be here because of our behaviors, something greater had mercy on us because we know we lost many people who didn't have the chance, a second chance, a third chance, you know. So thank God that we're here today. Tim, I want to get right into it. On Sober's Dope, we are really big on the concept of comorbid addiction, where we talk about the effects of mental health and our addictions. And we believe that these things go together. And when you separate them, you have kind of like a half chance of really being successful in your addiction recovery. Because if you don't treat the mental health, we know relapses pretty much, um, you have a higher chance. So can yeah. we talk about, I want to really get into your 27-year <clears throat> battle with your bipolar disorder. And can you talk to us about what that looked like and kind of what that struggle was like? Absolutely. You know, um, at the age of 14, um, I, I was... I was in the sports. My mom kept me in sports. I grew up without my dad, right? <clears throat> so to keep me occupied, my mom had me in sports. So I, I played baseball, football. Um, I was actually almost a professional skateboarder. Um, and then I got into boxing in high school. But I was always doing something to keep me occupied. What she noticed was when our team would lose, I would hold sole responsibility on the team losing. Even though there's, you know, 11 to 20 people on the team, depending on what sport I was playing, I would somehow say it's my fault. I, I, I should have caught that touchdown pass. You know, I, I should have struck out that last pitcher. 
You know, um, you know, I always took blame 100% onto myself. And my mom just thought in the beginning, I was a very passionate person um, that I took very things too seriously. She, she didn't really see that I was, I was having these manic episodes to where when I went to play sports, I, I would train longer and harder than everybody on the team. And when we lost, I would hold on to that loss until the next time we played. It wasn't a day or two. It would be a week or two until we stepped on that field again to play. And my mom would just say, well, you're a very emotional child. You know, you, you just, you're very passionate in what you do. And we're talking, you know, this is 80s. So bipolar disorder and taking medicine for kids back then wasn't really, my my mom's generation didn't believe in taking any type of mental health medication. Um, you know, my dad was a suck it up kid, you know, um, kind of a generation and he didn't believe in any mental illness. It was just, you, this is a, you're a little boy. This is what you have to do. Just get, get over it, move on. So looking into medicines at that early of an age was not, was not an option for me at that point. So it kind of got slept under the rug. By the time I was 18, um, you know, I, have, I don't think I've shared this, my, my senior year of high school. I lost five friends senior year of high school to suicide from January to October. So it wasn't even within a full year. Five of my friends shot themselves at the age of 18. And um, they made the national paper. Like it was like a, a, a curse on Parkville. I live in Parkville, Maryland. It was a curse on Parkville. What's going on? Or do they have some type of um, like note? Or is that, are they all signing it saying they're going to take their own lives? And that was the first time I really started thinking, maybe, maybe, maybe I should do it, you know. Um, and my my life, I'm, I'm becoming 18. I'm about to graduate. This is before I realized I wanted to join the Marine Corps. So I was kind of lost. What am I going to do after high school? My grades aren't good enough to get in college. You know what what what's my future hold? And I got overwhelmed. I got anxious. I started having panic attacks. So. The summer before senior year, I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to join the military. Um, my, my father and my brother were both in the Army. Both my grandfathers were in the Army. I said, that's the way, that's the way it's going to go. So I graduated high school. I joined the military. And I, I didn't tell them I was having any type of suicidal thoughts. I didn't tell them that I possibly had bipolar disorder or manic depressant disorder because I wouldn't have been able to join the military. So I do my stint in the military. The last six months of my military... I had a hard time adapting. We did um, six months of training in Somalia and it wasn't during wartime. I'm not a combat veteran, but we were over there and I got to see the ramifications of what war did to a country and its people. And I didn't think it affected me. But when we came back into the States, into North Carolina, I had a hard time adjusting just like because they were pretty much this is what we do. Get over it. Move on. On to the next. And I had a kind of a hard time adjusting to that. Um, I ended up breaking my ankle and I wasn't able to train. I wasn't able to do anything. So I was laid up for 90 days in what they called an admin company, administration company, so I could heal. And during that 90 days sitting there, I was like, I don't, I, don't, I can't do this anymore. You know, I just, um, I'm not physically fit. I'm 18. Um, by the way, this was the fourth time I had broken my ankle. I had broken my ankle through middle school and high school a couple of wow. times. Yeah. So this was the fourth time I ended up breaking it. And the Marine Corps comes to me. And they're like, um, 
you can't be an 0311 infantry anymore because your ankle can't withstand the 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 training. So you can go ahead and change MOSs. And I'm like, I, I didn't join the Marine Corps to do anything else but be be in infantry. That's mm-hmm. what I wanted to do. And said, well, you can go ahead and uh, we'll give you honorable discharge. You can get out and you have a year and a half saved of Montgomery Jive Bill. So you could go to college when you get home. And so I was like, you know what? I, I, that's what I'm doing. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not staying. So I get home. I'm 20, 21, almost 21. And the first month was great. First month was like, man, I don't have to go up 3.30 in the morning. I don't have to go running today. You know, I have to put my uniform on. I have to shave, get a haircut. The second month hit and I was kind of like, oh shit. Um, I got to get a job. I got to get a vehicle. Um, almost 21 years old. I'm living back in my mom's house. I kind of started to feel like a loser. The third month came and I got severely depressed. Uh, I was drinking every day. Um, I started smoking pot and taking painkillers because now I don't have a drug test, a random drug test that I have to take from the military. And I find myself sitting in my bedroom and I go into my father's armoire and I grab his gun and I sit it on my lap. And I'm sitting there looking at it. And I call my girlfriend at the time and I said, hey, something's not right. I'm sitting here staring at a gun on my lap and I'm contemplating using it. She came over within like five minutes and takes the gun from me. Later that evening, when my mom came home, I, I sat her down. I said, hey, something's wrong. I didn't tell her I just had my stepfather's gun in my lap. She would have freaked out and had me committed and all that. But I said, mom, something's wrong. I, I don't feel right. You know, I don't want to leave the house. I don't want to shower. I don't want to shave. I'm, I'm drinking every day. Like, I need to see somebody. So she got me into seeing the doctors that next week. And when we went in, they did a whole bunch of tests on me. And that's when they came back and finally diagnosed, you have bipolar one disorder, manic depressant. That's what they called it in the 90s. Now, I think it's just bipolar one or bipolar two. They don't they leave out the manic depressant because when you have bipolar, you're either manic or you're depressed. Right. So it's, it's kind of in that in, in that um, category now. So their first thing was to put me on medicines, which is generally what they do. And I bring this up every time I talk, because if you are going to be put on any type of medicines, whether it's for mental illness uh, high blood pressure, you know, kidney failure, whatever the reason you're being put on medicines, please be honest with your doctors. I wasn't honest with them. I wasn't telling them I was drinking every day and smoking pot and taking painkillers. So the medicines that they were putting me on were not working. So when I would go back my 30 or 60 or 90 day checkup to see how the medicines were working, they would, well, how's, how's everything going? It's worse. It's not working. I don't understand. And neither could they because I wasn't being honest with them. So their solution was, well, maybe that medicine isn't for you. You know, we'll put you on these medicines over here. We'll change the milligrams. Um, We'll give that another 30, 60, 90 days. You come back and we'll do an update. This went on from the age of 21 to the age of 44 to the day I went into rehab. Wow. I would would be on and off medicines. Uh, I would do the typical... uh, I say bipolar thing. I, I would be on medicine for six months and be like, I'm feeling great. I don't need this anymore. And I'd stop taking it. Right. And a month or two would go by, then I'd have my big crash and uh, have to go back to the doctor and get put back on medicine again. And then, why, why'd you stop taking it? Because I was feeling good. That means it was working. Oh, I, I, okay. The whole time I'm not willing to say, well, I, I'm drinking and doing drugs. So you know, I really don't need the medicine because in my mind, I was ashamed I had bipolar. Okay. 
I was ashamed that I had to take a medicine to feel, you know, quote unquote normal, like uh, like another person would be. Um, what was wrong with me? Why do I have to take a medicine to get through the day when most people don't have to take a psychological medicine to function? Right. Why did this happen to me? Um, I played the victim for 27 years. Um, I would use that to drink and drug. I would tell myself, well, there's something wrong with me. So who cares if I drink or drug? Because I was born with something messed up in my brain. Um, I held on to that my entire life, basically. Um, I didn't I didn't understand why that happened to me. And I tried to look for reasons. You know, I, I held I held my father accountable. Oh, he left when I was six years old. You know, maybe that had a, a big trauma to me, which it did. I'm not going to lie. My father leaving when I was a six-year-old boy impacted my life because I grew up wondering why he left me at six years old and my brother was 16, almost going 17. Why did he stick around so long with my brother, but he left me in first grade? What was wrong with me? And then I would say, well, maybe he knew something was wrong with me. That's why he left. Did he not love me because he he thought maybe something was different with me? Um, and and still to this day, I'm coming up. On, I have 20 more months sober this month. Um, I'm just now starting to reconnect with my father. Hmm. Uh, I've seen him three times in the last 21 months. And it's OK because I've learned to forgive the past. And for, I'm not, I can't forget it, but I, I, I'm forgiving it. And it's for me. It's not for him. It's for me to be able to grow and understand that everything that I went through, the bipolar, the, the drug addiction, the, the alcoholism, it didn't happen to me. It happened for me. Mm-hmm. It happened for me to become this person that I am today. I couldn't generally sit here and, and talk to you and be honest and trustworthy if I didn't experience these things in life. I'm not upset that it happened to me anymore. I look at it as I was picked because I was strong enough to withstand that 27 years and come up on top and be able to share my story with people who may not understand why they have a a mental illness such as bipolar or ADHD or whatever, what I have you. I believe we're chosen because we can withstand this extra in life. our mind works differently. And usually people with, with bipolar or say ADHD or um, any, any type of those, not going into schizophrenia or multiple personality, but any type of disorder where you can't stay focused and you have to do something else or multiple tasks or your emotions are involved. When we get that in, in check, most of us are very successful people. We can accomplish things that most people cannot accomplish because our brain does work a little differently. I used to think the bipolar was a curse. Now I look at it as a blessing because I understand more about myself. I understand more about other people. I can pinpoint things now. Um, It helps that I have clarity and I'm sober Um, because before, before I never picked out any of that stuff, I would just say, oh, they're crazy. Now I I understand my empathize more. I don't sympathize. I empathize empathize with people because I understand we're all going through something and we all do have different ways of dealing with things. 
Um, unfortunately, some of us turn to addiction. Um, the biggest unfortunate thing is some of us do take our own lives, right. which I, I have tried on two occasions. And um, I'm here because of what you said in the beginning. There, there truly is a higher power. There's a God. Um, I didn't believe in that most of my life. Mm -hmm. I thought if there was a true higher power that that created me, created this earth, created everybody, why was I suffering so bad? If if he or she truly loved me as a, as a child, why is he picking on me? Right. That's what I, that's what I thought. You know, there's no possible way something so great and powerful could make me suffer for so long. But it, it's always a reason. There, there's a process. There, there is, you know, I never trusted the process. I never knew to trust the process. I always wanted things now. I wanted things yesterday, you know, the big house, the big car, the money in the bank, um, fame, fortune. I always wanted to be kind of famous and, and, and have people like me. And it didn't happen because I wouldn't have been able to handle it. Mm, that's right. I wasn't ready to handle it. And if I did have it, my ego would have gotten my way. Um, I would have been arrogant. I wouldn't have been grateful. I would have been one of those guys that made a bunch of money and lost it within a year or two because I would have thought I, it was owed to me. Mm -hmm. I was entitled to have it. That's that's not how this this life on earth works. We do have to earn everything. But what I have noticed, which my mom always said, it's better to give than it is to receive. The more I've been giving back and not expecting anything in return, the more I have gotten back in return, more than any money, any fame, any big house, any car ever could ever could give me. It's, it's a feeling in my heart that I'm doing something right for the first time in my life. And I don't think I could put any, any amount of money on that. Um, I feel as if I have my purpose now in life, and that is to share exactly what I've went through. So people don't think that they're alone, that their problems aren't theirs alone, that um, they're not a burden on anybody else. You know, it, they don't have to be embarrassed. They don't have to be ashamed. We are going through something, and it's okay. That's right. I love that. I love that. Thank you. I want to go back a bit and kind of like, so with the, do you know that there's a connection between loss, right? And our brains. So when you kind of thinking about your past and being six year old, being a six year old and your dad leaving, there is a connection where our brains, when we experience loss, we experience grief, loss, rejection, and all of those things the same way. It changes our brain a bit through neuroplasticity and causes these depressive symptoms and these feelings of loss and unworthiness and all of these array of emotions. So being so young, you could have started thinking of, like you said, you could start looking at yourself negative, like maybe some connection between my dad leaving and me. And then when you got into sports, and things wasn't working out, you started putting a lot of brain blame on yourself and even losing a game, your brain already had that pathway active. So you, you lose a mm. game, you put the blame on yourself, 
your new, your brain starts to shift your self-identity and you start having these depressive symptoms. It sounds like it started as a kid. I lost my dad at 12. So I know I took that loss in internally and it took me all, I didn't, I just, I'm just getting to a point where I understand it. I released my dad and myself. I love my dad. I'm like, it's not your fault you die. God wasn't bad for taking you. It wasn't, it wasn't about me. You know, you have your journey. Things do happen. As you get older, you know, you could imagine fathers would leave because of relationships, a bunch of things that could have been. You never know what it is. Right. But it wasn't about you. You didn't do anything wrong. But there is that connection. And it takes a long time for the science to catch up. I had to speak to a grief counselor and a bereavement counselor and go to therapy for specific, specifically loss. And when I started studying the connection between our brain how it deals with loss, you know, and how it changes. So when we say it changes the neuroplasticity, our vital neurotransmitter hormones drop to an unhealthy level. And that's when you get these manic depressive or it could be any type of mental health um, disorder that arises out of that change in the brain, right? And unless you sit down and talk with somebody or you could pinpoint it, you kind of go on autopilot looking for ways to deal with this emptiness that's within within you, right? So for me at 12 or 13, I started smoking weed. I was I was sad. I, you know, I was drinking a lot. I said once I started drinking, I couldn't stop. I was always problematic, fighting with people and getting into and getting in my own way. And then I sat down with a really good psychologist one day who said, you know, you're sad. But you always seem happy. So you come in the room, you're the loudest person, you're making everyone laugh. You have this kind of manic, this high kind of like episodes. But you're like, as far as the scale of happiness, the average person is here. You're all the way down here. And we have to help you with medication to kind of get you back to a normal way to help your serotonin levels kind of like get healthy, those receptors. So yeah. what I was... Uh, what I was, what I understood was, but my doctor, beautiful psychiatrist, she was like, "So you're sad, and we got to get you this. You got to get your serotonin levels back." And then I learned something else that blew my mind, brother. When I was drinking, the alcohol was robbing me of my available dopamine stores in my brain, and then that was affecting my dopamine receptors. So when you deplete or really damage your dopamine receptors to a certain point and you have no more dopamine stores because alcohol and drugs will actually steal your available dopamine and release it into your system. And that's when we get that high. We happy. We high. Oh, we jamming. Right. And then we crash. Then we wake up and we have that hangover and we crash. Our brain wakes up and goes, yo, who stole all of our dopamine? And it's a really awkward feeling. We know that. That's when that depression sets in and that weariness. And then you start looking for the drugs, right? And it's like almost like you're looking for some type of medication or something to fix that that deficit, right, of your dopamine, that, 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 those missing available stores. And for me, that was the worst part of my addiction. And I'm thinking about what you're saying. I'm trying to make a connection back. If you were doing drugs the whole time while they was trying to restore those receptors, at the same time, the alcohol and the weed and stuff was still robbing yourself of available dopamine and affecting your neurotransmitter hormones. So it wasn't balancing out. Yep. So you find a solution in March of 2021. Was that solution 
continuing your medication while you got off of the drugs or alcohol? Or did it happen? How did that actually happen where the medication started to work? Yeah, yeah. So, so the the last year of my addiction um, was the worst year of my addiction that I've ever had. Um, prior to that, you know, I was doing opioids, smoking pot, and drinking beer. But that last year of my addiction, I got rid of the beer because the beer what I had stopped. I had stopped taking opioids. Okay. Um, after trying to commit suicide, I actually, okay. um, so in, in, I'll step back a little bit to, to lead you up to that. Cause I started mixed martial arts at 32 because I lost another job, which is part of my bipolar and uh, addiction from the age of 21 up until a couple of years ago, I went through 46 employments. Okay. And that was all due to my mental illness and my drug and alcohol addiction. And I, I just couldn't keep a job. And I would, and I, unnecessarily, I only got fired four times. Most of the time I would just quit or just wouldn't go back because I would get bored or just didn't feel like working anymore. Right. So it came to the point where I started mixed martial arts and my wife said, okay, you can, you can do this for a while and see if you can make some money. And I started making some, some money, decent money. And I got sponsors and I was fighting up and down Philadelphia, New Jersey, Baltimore, Virginia, Washington. And my last fight, I tore my rotator cuff in three places, and I had to have major wow. rotator cuff surgery. Okay. And that's when I started a four-year-long prescription pain addiction to Oxycontins that, right. that the doctors were prescribing me. And right. this is this is 11 years ago, so I could, right. I'd only had to go to my doctor and say, hey, I need some more, and he'd write me that prescription. I didn't have Absolutely. to go through the, through the pain management clinic, and I didn't have to go through hoops, which is great because I'm glad they're doing that now. But it got to the point where I was I was taking eight to ten, sometimes 12, 20 milligram oxycontins a day, and I was drinking twelve to eighteen beers and smoking my eighth, if not sometimes a quarter of weed every single day. And I got scared. I was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna take this one night and I'm gonna fall asleep and I'm not gonna wake up because right. this is this is what happens. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I get comfortable taking this much, and my body's gonna shut down one night and. I, I reached over on my, my dresser and I opened my bottle and I poured it out in my hand. I had 18, 20 milligram oxys. I took all 18 of them. Wow. I went into the living room and I opened up 12 pack of beer and I, I slammed all 12 of them within 45 minutes. I go into my bedroom and I lay on the bed and I remember saying, please, God, don't let me wake up anymore. I don't want to live this way. I just want the pain to stop. And I pass out. I wake up that next day, like 16, 18 hours later. It was like evening time when I woke up. My first thought was, oh, my God, I didn't die. That was my wow. very first thought. My wow. second thought was to get up, go into the bathroom, grab my refill that I had in, in on the counter in the bathroom, and I dumped the entire refill down the toilet. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror and saying, this is going to get bad. But remember this feeling, we're never taking pain medicine again. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. And for the next 10 days, I was probably the sickest I think I've ever been in my entire life. The whole gambit of coming off of opioids. And um, <clears throat> that 10th day, which I'm going to share this because this is one of the times where I started to believe in a higher power. 
that tenth day, I decided to take my take my truck and go ride through a park because I'd been in the house sick for a week and a half. I had to get out, and I'm driving through this beautiful park and I'm yelling up at the sky. I'm like, "Why did I live? What's my purpose? Is there anything else out there?" Because I don't believe that I, I'm I'm not here for a reason. I just don't understand why I lived. Like, send me a sign. I need something. And I'm driving through the park, and I get to this tree where. In 1996, my best friend, unfortunately, lost control of his vehicle, hit the tree, and he died at the age of 18 at this tree. And his parents set up a nice vigil at this tree. They have a picture of him hanging on the tree, and there's a book there that is still there today, 2023, that you can stop and write to him, and you can put a flower by the tree. And it's really beautiful that they kept it there. And I park my truck, and I go up to this tree, and I'm crying. And I'm like, Bill. I need to know why I'm here. I need a sign. I, I don't know, understand why I lived. I don't know my purpose. I don't believe in a higher power. Like I'm lost. Just please send me a sign that I'm not alone, that there's something else out there because I truly don't believe it. And I get in my truck and I go to leave the park. As I'm leaving, I'm like crying and snotting. So I pull over to the side of the road, but I didn't pull over on the right-hand side. For some reason, I pull over on the left-hand side where oncoming traffic would park. And I'm, I'm wiping my eyes. I'm blowing my nose. In about 10 minutes, goes by. I pull over, but um, I, I pull over on the wrong side of the road. For some reason, I have no idea why, right? Okay. And this car pulls up about 10 minutes after I'm, I'm sitting there. And I watch this man. He gets out of his vehicle, and he opens up his back door, and he grabs his dog. He's about to go walk across the street where the water is, where people go picnicking and hiking and, and, and fishing. And I'm watching him get out of the vehicle. And I'm like, man, that guy looks so familiar. Then all of a sudden, it, it dawns on me. It was my best friend who died December 26, 1996. It was his father. Wow. This is March 16th, 2017, 21 years later, right? I haven't seen this man since the day of my friend's funeral. So I get out of my truck and I look. I said, Mr. Bill, is that you? And he turns around and looks at me. He goes, Timmy, is that you? I said, yeah. He said, what are you doing here? And I fall to the curb and I start crying. And I'm like, I'm I'm an alcoholic. I'm an addict. I try taking my life. I don't know why I'm here. I, I, you know. And he walks over to me and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he looks at me and he says, Timmy, I'm not supposed to be here this morning. I'm supposed to be in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina at a family reunion trip. My bags are packed in my truck. I was supposed to leave 6 a.m. this morning. My wife came to me in a dream last night. And told me to come here this morning at 10 a.m. And then go down to Myrtle Beach. I believe I was sent here to see you. Wow. And I look at him. I say, Mr. Bill, I just stopped at Billy's tree and asked him for a sign that I wasn't alone. That there was something else out there. And we hugged. And he told me everything's going to be okay. And this is how the addiction and mental illness manipulate and and try to take you down. Because as I leave the park. For about 10 minutes, I'm like feeling good. I'm like on cloud nine. Okay, there's something else out there. Nothing's going to happen to me. Like I'm my friends looking out for me. I'm being protected. And just like that, my mental illness and my addiction says, you're absolutely right. Nothing is going to happen to you. So you don't have to stop living the way that you are because you're being protected. So for the next four years, I, I was drinking myself to death. The last year of my sobriety, and I wasn't taking any medicine. I stopped completely taking my bipolar medicine. That last year of my addiction, I stopped drinking beer, and I started to drink fireball whiskey. 
Oh, wow. Fireballs is no joke. Yeah. And um, I, for me, my, my mom was telling me I was missing that that warm blanket feeling that those opioids used to give me. You know, like, like that 15, 20 minute instant ah feeling that, that my, my feet would tingle and my body would get hot. And once I took a shot or two of that fireball whiskey, I had that same feeling of that warmness going through my body. So I was like, okay, this is what I want. And it's kind of funny because I would tell myself not to buy the big bottle because then I would be accountable of actually how much whiskey I was drinking throughout the day. So I would get the miniatures that they sell at the counter. Mm-hmm. I could easily go through them, throw them out my window while I was driving or hide them from my wife so she couldn't know exactly how much I was drinking. And for me, myself, I wasn't accountable of exactly how much I was drinking. But that last year got so bad that I would get up and before I went to work, I would stop at the liquor store and I'd get a sleeve of Fireball miniatures, which is 10 of them in a, in a pack. I would drink all 10 of them by one o'clock, one thirty. Wow. I'd get off. I'd get off at work at three thirty and go immediately to the first liquor store that was closest to my job site. I would get 10 more of them. I would drink five of those on the way home before I even got home. I would finish the other five after dinner and then be back at the liquor store getting another 10. The last year of my addiction, I was drinking 25 to 30 miniatures of fireball whiskey every single day. One day I was like, I wonder how much I'm drinking. So I took one of those fireball miniatures. One miniature is two and a half shots. So two and a half times 25 to 30. I was drinking upwards of 65 sometimes 80 shots fireball whiskey every single day for over a year still no medicine that was my medicine i was medicating myself it got to the point where i had just gotten a brand new truck and i was driving home from the liquor store after getting my 10 my managers and i hit something and i still to this day have no recollection of what i hit i don't know if it was a parked car a concrete barrier what what have you but i remember walking in the front door and telling my wife, I just hit something. I'm not dealing with this shit tonight. I'm going to bed. And I go to bed and I pass out. And I wake up the next morning like a, a typical blackout drunk. Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm going to go to the grocery store and get milk and bread and stuff for breakfast. What else you need? And she looks at me and says, how are you going to do that? I'm like, in my, my truck in the driveway. She's like, Tim, go look at your truck. So I go outside and my right passenger mirror is completely gone off the truck. And my right front tire is hanging off the rim and it's pushed up underneath the, the the bumper. I do not know how I drove it home. The only thing I can think of is the, the liquor store is literally across the street of my house. And I probably got scared and was like, no, I'm driving this shit home and parking in my driveway before I get locked up. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting there looking at it. <clears throat> she pops her head out the door and she's like, you don't remember what you hit, do you? I said, I, I don't remember. She's like, Tim, you could have killed yourself. You could have killed somebody else. You can't stay here anymore. I don't want you around the girls anymore. You have to pack your bags and leave. I'm like, okay, okay. So um, I called AAA. They came over to put a spare on my on my vehicle, and I called my friend. I said, hey man, um, can I come over for a couple of days? You know, let's give her four or five days. She'll cool down and she'll let me back in the house. I can continue my life. You know, nothing's going to change. Right. So he says, okay, sure, no problem. So I go to his house, and he's like, hey man, it, it's Friday night. You just got kicked out of your house. We might as well go to the bar, man. And I'm like, you know what? Hell yeah, that's a good idea. Now, now I got justification to really go to the bar. I did, My wife just kicked me out. So we go to the bar. I get completely drunk. And as I'm leaving the bar, I rear-end somebody at a red light. Wow. This, this is less than 24 hours. It's like 12 hours. Later. And I get out. 
And I look at the guy's truck, and he actually had a tow hitch on the back of his vehicle. His truck was fine. There was no scratch on his truck. Now the front of my bumper's all V'd in. And I get out, and I'm like, are you okay? And he's like, yeah, I'm okay. I said, your truck's okay. You're okay, buddy. And I slapped him on his back. I got my truck, and I took off. I knew if the cops were coming, I was I was getting a DUI, and my, my truck was getting impounded. So I get back to my buddy's house, and I'm like, man, I can't stay here. I I, I got to go be by myself and think about my life. You know, I, I just can't do it. So I grab my stuff. I leave his house. I stop at the liquor store, and I get 10 more managers. And I go and I park my vehicle at one of those parking rides where people park for the day and grab a train. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I turn my phone off. I don't want to talk to nobody. I don't want to be bothered. I wanted to sit there and drink and listen to sad ass music and and do the whole pity party. Um, you know, my kids are better off without me. My wife deserves a better husband. I don't deserve to live like the whole just thinking about everything that I put my entire family through over the years, all the jobs I've lost, all the, you know, cars I've had repossessed because I couldn't afford to pay them because I was losing jobs and, and just every all the all the shitty things I've, I did to my family. And I sat there for two days and just drank and passed out and drank and passed out. And finally, March 5th, 2021, at 7 after 10 in the morning, I turned my phone on after 48 hours of having it off. Two minutes after I turned my phone on, the phone rings. And I look down and I don't, I don't, I don't know who it is. All it says is Westchester, Pennsylvania. I'm like, I have no idea who this is, but I pick it up. And I pick it up. And it's my childhood friend, Brandon Novak. Um, I don't know if you know who he is. Um, he's one of the members of the Jackass crew. He's Bam Margera's best friend. He was in Viva La Bam. Professional oh, wow. Skateboarder, professional skateboarder. That's um, quite wow. That's big. Yeah. So, and <clears throat> I'm going to tell you what he says. So excuse me. But he says, Lodging, what the fuck are you doing? Mm. And I said, I'm cold. I'm hungry. I'm drunk and I'm tired. And he says, good, motherfucker. That's what you need. I just got off the phone with your wife and your mom. I have a plane ticket set for you this evening. And I got you into Banyan Treatment Centers down in West Palm Beach, Florida. I want you to get on that plane and get your life back. And he just simply hangs up. I sit in my truck. And five minutes go by and my wife calls me. She said, hey, where are you? I'm like, I'm a couple miles down the street at the park and ride. She's like, I just got off the phone with Brandon. Please come home. Pack your bags, take a shower, try to eat something and take a nap. I had about four hours before I had to get to the airport. So I'm like, okay, okay, okay. So I go home, I pack, take a shower. I couldn't eat and I couldn't sleep. My, my, I, dude, my anxiety's through the roof. All I'm right. panicking. I'm like, how long am I going away for? He didn't tell me, is it 30, 60? Is it, is it six-month program? Like, oh my God, I can't believe my life has gotten to this point where I've got to go to rehab now. And, and my mind's just racing and I'm sitting on my bed and I'm like, I can't do it. I'm talking myself out of it. I can't do this. I can't go. I can't do it. And one last time, my addiction steps in and it says, I'll take the pain away. Just come with me. Mm-hmm. And it grabs my hand and I walk to the basement of my home and I throw a rope around my neck and I stand up on a bucket. And it says, step off and the pain. And I listen and I come to my, my home and I step on a bucket and put a rope around my neck. And my wife realizes I'm not in the bedroom anymore. So she comes looking for me and she comes down to the basement of our home where our children live. 
and she sees me hysterically crying with the rope tight around my neck about to step off this bucket. And she says, what are you doing? And I said, I can't do it. I can't go. I just want the pain to stop. And I don't know how. And she looks at me and she says, Tim, do you know what this will do to your little girls? Please get down and get on that plane. Get on that plane and everything is going to be okay. And uh, about 30 seconds go by and I take the rope around my neck off. I fall to the floor of our home and I cry. I go upstairs and I pick up my phone. I call Brandon. I'm like, hey, I got to go. If I don't go tonight, this disease is going to kill me. That's what it wants. It wants my life. I have to go. And all he says is, I'm proud of you. I love you. Call me when you pass security. And he simply hangs up the phone. A couple hours later, goodbye. My mom takes me to the airport. I get past security. I call him. I say, hey, man, I'm going. I got 35 minutes left. I just want to let you know I'm past security. I'm just waiting for them to call me to board the plane. And he just says, I love you. I'm proud of you. You're about to get back everything that you've ever lost times 10. And he hangs up the phone. As I go to sit down at this chair in this airport, as I sit down, I get this overwhelming feeling of hope that engulfs my entire body. It was the same warm blanket feeling that drugs and alcohol gave me, except this time, my worry. My doubt, my fear, my anxiety, my panic, all leave my body at once. And I hear this voice in my head that I've never heard before in my entire life. It was a woman's voice and it was calming and it was warm. And she says, everything is going to be okay. And then it just goes away. Wow. It was the most amazing experience I have ever had in my entire life. I truly believe I had a spiritual experience in that airport. I haven't thought about drinking or drugs one time since that that experience at the airport. When I got to rehab, I didn't miss any meetings. I volunteered. I went to extra meetings for military veterans and, and first responders. I did everything that they asked me to do. I started working out with a personal trainer three days a week. I changed my diet and I found faith. I started believing in a power greater than myself that could restore me to sanity because I truly did not believe that before. But what a gift that is when you finally receive that because I'm such at peace right now. And I saw the doctors. They did the tests and they brought me in. They said, how old are you? I said, I'm 44. And he looks at me and he says, your blood pressure is 167 over 145. You're, You're on the verge of having a stroke. Your liver and kidneys are four times what they should be. He said, I don't know how you got in here at this time or why. He said, but if you would have waited another month, even if you wouldn't have stopped for another month or two, you would not have made it to the age of 47. Your your internal organs would have shut down and you would have died of alcoholism. He said, you literally came in here at the exact time needed to save your life. When he said that to me, and I started thinking about all the events that lead up to me, I said, this, is, this isn't a coincidence. I don't believe in coincidences anymore. This happened to me at the exact moment in my life that was needed to save my life. And there was a, a, a true reason behind it. And that's when I decided what my friend gave me, he gave me for free. He didn't expect anything back. He didn't want money. 
He didn't want anything from me. He wanted to give me a new life for free because that's what was given to him. And I now know after working the steps, working the traditions, getting a home group, having a sponsor and, and doing everything that I was supposed to do, that this is a this recovery program is a we program. We help each other. We help each other to understand the addiction, the mental disorders, and we help each other get to the, another day of sobriety. This is what I have to do. I have to give back what was given to me so freely. I found my purpose. I never knew what it was. And now I know all those years that I suffered yeah. and went through all those ups and downs. It was to make me this man I am today. And for me to understand how precious this gift of life is that we have, because I wasted 27 years of it and I don't want to waste another day. So every time I do a podcast, my goal is just to reach one more person. If one more person can hear what I have to say, then that's one less person we lose to this disease of addiction and mental illness. I love it so much. I love it so much. Wow, man. I'm I'm so happy you got off that bucket. And I'm so happy you listened to your friend and um your wife. Um, shout out to your wife, shout out to your family, mom, and everybody. You know, you know, Tim, you're right, man. At any one of those moments, we you could have lost it all. And um, I'm happy you're here today. You're in early recovery, so early recovery is extremely an extreme sensitive time. How are you doing now? Today, in this moment, you have you know, about a year um, in, right? I have 21 months. 21 months. Okay. Yeah. So that's uh, right. Three more months, man. I got my two years. Yeah, my yeah. You gotta give you. That's right. Yeah, you gotta, you gotta give me that much. I'm gonna give you the um, much. <laughs> to be honest. Somebody asked me that. Has it been hard? It has not. Because I believe everybody has this once, once it doesn't matter what it is, if it's success in business or life or addiction, you know, once we make up our mind and we say enough is enough, I don't want this anymore. And I, and I have to do this to live. I have to do this to change my life. Well, once I made up that decision that I didn't want that anymore and I want nothing to do with that. I've been able to completely block it out of my life. Now, I don't ever want to forget where I came from. My past is married to my future because without remembering where I came from, I won't know where I'm going. But to be quite honest, I love myself now and I know I'm worth it. And I don't ever want to go back there. So I know that for today, I haven't drank and I haven't picked up a drug and I'm going to go to bed tonight sober. I don't worry about tomorrow. I don't worry about next month. This truly for me is a, a day at a time. Right. Um, and, I, and I believe as long as we don't look too far ahead, we can avoid the anxiety. We can avoid the panic attacks. We stay focused in today, which is a gift, what, why they call it the present. I, I don't worry about yesterday and i don't worry about tomorrow tomorrow's not promised i don't know what tomorrow's gonna give me i don't know if i'm gonna wake up tomorrow i don't know but today i was good to my wife i was good to my kids i went to work i did everything that i was supposed to do today if something were to happen tomorrow i would die happy knowing that 
I've changed my life. I've showed my children, no matter how bad your life can get, you can turn it around. You can change your stars. You can become the person that your God has always had waiting for you. Change is scary. Absolutely. On any level. And I think that that holds a lot of people back. We get so complacent in our life and it gets so comfortable. But when when those months goes by and you're still in that comfort zone, people tend to get sad. They tend to get depressed because they know they were made for much more. We're all here for a purpose. We're all made to to leave our mark in this world. Um, So I don't want to be complacent anymore. I want to go after every single second of of this day. You know, there's something I heard. It says uh, if your bank account was full of $86,700 and every midnight, they would replenish that $86,700. Would you spend all of that money before midnight? Absolutely. Absolutely. Right. That's how many seconds you have in the day. Right. So why waste any second of this beautiful life, man? I, I'm so grateful to be alive. And um, I don't want to waste any more of it. And I, I think I have I think I have some work to do. And I and I, I'm I'm open to whatever he has waiting for me. That's right. And look, it's a beautiful uh, old man told me in AA one time in early recovery. He said one thing that stuck with me, brother. He said, young man, how much time you have? I said, I have about uh, I don't know. It was early because like two weeks, either two weeks or two months or whatever. He said there's paradise on the other side. And then he walked out the room. And I'm sitting there newly in recovery, a little cranky, like this guy talking about paradise <laughs> on the other side. And I kept playing that in my head. And now 10 years later, this year, this month makes 10 years for me. December 15th, I'll be celebrating 10 years. Congratulations. Thank you. And I'm looking back and it feels like yesterday. And I'm like, now I see what he's talking about. It's paradise in a way where you have you have the greatest gift that you was talking about, hope, that gift of hope that you could take that some somehow warmed you up that that bit of hope in that airport that warmed you up right it brought you back to life it gave you something to hang on to um that's that's that that's where it's at that's the paradise that's the uh, the ability to get up and to have the option and you don't have to check in with your doc your drug of choice to what you're gonna do today how you're gonna feel or whatever you go out there and get it that freedom to be you as God intended you to be is paradise. Most of us fall victim. The drugs and alcohol changes you as a person. It changes your brain. It changes everything about you, right? And you never get to really be who you truly are. That innocent kid, that six-year-old kid, you know, that dad stepped out right before that moment in your life that's what we were trying to restore ourselves back to before all the trauma before everything find that innocence again that's that paradise and you right that addiction the damn drugs and alcohol is evil and city is dark and nasty man like you said it just wanted your life we seek fun and refuge and this bullshit concept of self-medication and coping with through addiction. But this thing is designed to destroy you on a cellular, psychological, spiritual, emotional, and mental level. It's just a nasty deal. And I always tell people, look, uh, seek therapy before you try to deal with loss and grief through alcohol and drugs. Trust me. 
do the work. Now I want to close out here. Are you, are you addressing your um, mental health? Are you seeing therapy? Did you do anything in regards to your mental health while you're doing your recovery plan and the, the steps to 12? Yeah. Steps? So, so actually in rehab, um, I have talked to psychiatrists, psychologists, and uh, they, they asked me, so on all the medicines you've been on, what, what do you think work the best? And I said, well, for two years, I was on Lexapro. I said, that seemed to work the best for me. So they put me on Lexapro and I said, and I have a hard time sleeping. I said, my mind races. I'll wake up in the middle of the night and start thinking about the next couple of days. In my... So they had me on um, Seroquel, 100 milligrams to keep my mind racing. <laughs> and I'm only on five milligrams of Lexapro. It's coming up on 21 or you know 21 months now. I feel amazing. Yeah, um, there's no drugs, no alcohol. Right. Um, I, I went to a psychiatrist and psychologist for the first six months. And then I started doing these podcasts. And to be 100% honest with you, when I share with, with random people, it's it's like a therapy to me. I, I Every time I talk, I remember something else from my past. And it allows me to address it. Maybe not on camera, but I'll get off and I'll start writing things down. I journal. That helps, that's been helping me a lot. and. I go to the gym every day and people are like, oh, you just want to work out. The gym for me is mental. It gives me discipline, consistency. Um, no matter how bad of a day I had, I go to the gym. I, I'll run, I'll lift weights, whatever. It balances me again. The physical aspect is, is just a reward from all of my hard work. Right. But that it's more mental for me than it is physical. Um, no matter how bad of a day I've had, which to be completely honest, it's going to sound really weird. I haven't really had any bad days being sober, man, because I understand that life happens on life's terms. Right. And now I know how to deal with if something comes, if I get a flat tire, guess what? God doesn't hate me. And I don't have a bad luck. I got a flat tire, man. It happens to everybody. You know, I don't look at things the same. My, my perspective has changed so much on, in life when something happens to me. I deal with it. I don't stack it up for the next five things that are going to happen to me and then try to have to deal with all five of them, become overwhelmed. And that's when I would usually turn to drugs and alcohol because I don't want to deal with any of it. And then before I know it, there's 20 or 30 things backed up that I haven't dealt with because I've been drunk or high for the last month. So now when something happens, I deal with it one-on-one. -on -one. But changing my perspective, that, that's that been a huge thing for my mental health as well. I, I used to say, you know, I got to get, I got to get up and go to work. I, I got to go to the gym. I got to take the trash out today. I got to do these dishes. You know, now I say I get to get up and go to work. I get, I have physically able to go to the gym. I get to take the trash out at the home that I own. I get to make dinner for my children. You know, I get to spend time with them. I get to do these things when so many other people don't have the chance um, may have lost their life and they'll never experience this. I'm dude, my wife will tell you, she's like, I, I don't understand how things happen to you and you stay so positive. And I, I just tell her, you know, we think about things all day long in our mind, and we have to hear that over and over and over again. Why would you want to put any negativity in there? I would rather fill it with positivity and look, have a different outlook on life. Um, 
And then she'll tell you, I come at you and have a bad day, just that. And you'll spit three positive things at me. She, Sometimes I want to punch you in the face. She's <laughs> so damn positive. Uh, I don't get it. Uh, I'm like, I have to be. You have I to have be, to right. be. Right. I've, I've lived through hell and, and I want to experience heaven on earth. And we have a, a, a large amount of evidence to prove that when we're not positive, what we could get ourselves into. And that's what was your past, right? Oh, God. I mean, look, beating ourselves up, blaming ourselves for everything, not processing emotions, dealing with loss incorrectly or not understanding how to deal with loss. You know, now, you know, we do think we lose things in life. It could be a job. It could be a friend. It could be on a contract. It could be something that we really wanted now you know when that happens again, because life will always take something away and it always gives us as it taketh. And we know that we have to deal with loss on a proper level, right? Now yes. you know, you know, going back to that six-year-old kid who dad has stepped out. I'm glad and you did, you're doing the healing. So for everyone listening. Tim went back to start to repair that connection with his father. You know, you cut yourself some slack. You started to realize this is not, it wasn't about you. You didn't do anything bad. When you lost those games, I know going all the way back, you know, it wasn't just your fault you lost that game. It could have just, it was just the nature of the game. It's not you, right. just your individual fault. And then, and even when you go offline, really go through the concept of loss and how you deal with it, your best friend, that was big, right? Because now you're talking yeah. about, you lost a best friend. You lost your, your your dad stepped out. You didn't lose him, but he 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 stepped out. So that kind of left that little emotional void there. Then five of your friends, if I'm not mistaken, lost took their lives in high school, yes. right? Then you're losing these games, and then when you're playing these games, you may hit your head. You know, when you hit your head, it creates mental health issues. They don't always talk about that. And a fun fact. Not until recently, and we thank uh, Dr. Amen, um, Dr. Daniel Amen from the Amen Clinic. He was the first um, neuropsychologist that actually looked at our brain to see where the trauma is coming from. So psychologists or and psychiatrists will actually ask you, they'll talk to you, they'll weave out your symptoms based on what you're explaining to them, and then they'll just give you a bunch of medications based on what you're saying. No one ever thought, well, let's look at this guy's brain. He could have gotten into a fight. You was a boxer. Somebody punched you in your head twice at 18. Now you're dealing with a, neuro a neurological disorder that could manifest as a manic depressive symptom. Then you lose a couple of things and you start going like, oh, something's wrong with me. So you're sitting there in your room and you're like, I got this gun on my lap. I don't know why. And then there's a clear why, maybe, right? You were an athlete. You was dealing with contact sport. You was dealing with loss and grief at a young age. There we go. So before um, we wrap, I just want to thank you because, you know, I, I, I got emotional today. And you're one of the few people I spoke to who also heard that voice, that female in the airport. I, 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 I call that God. When I was stuck yes. in Brooklyn on my knees, I asked for a creative miracle and I heard a voice and I love the recovery community because no one ever called me a quack for saying that this guy <laughs> actually heard a voice. And I believe that was a supernatural experience where God actually came in. It felt like some guy, somebody put a mic jack into a different part of my brain. I heard a voice come from nowhere. It wasn't my voice. wasn't my subconscious voice. It nope. was like a new thing that came and said, hello. And I'm like, hello. Oh, God, what's up? And he was like, get up, go to the hospital and do everything. 
everything that voice told me to that day, I'm doing till now. And that's the only thing that saved my butt. So we had that in common, brother. Um, and I'm, it was really an honor speaking with you today. So before we wrap, can you tell everyone where they can find you and um, any parting words to the Sober is Dope community? Yeah, so my, my main page is on Instagram, at T Lodgin, and that's where I post most of my, my podcast. Um, I've been able to travel the country the last couple months um, speaking with first responders and veterans about mental health disorder, um, addiction, suicide prevention. I work with two nonprofit organizations, the Overwatch Collective and Rockstar Testimony, where we bring awareness to mental illness and addiction. Really great people that I'm working with. And um, I, yeah, I want people to understand that you're not alone. You're, what you're going through is not yours and yours alone. There are so many more of us out here that understand exactly and, and we know what you're going through. Don't be ashamed. Don't be embarrassed. You're not burdening anybody with your problems. You would be surprised once you opened up and told somebody what you were going through, what their actual response would be. Nine times out of 10, they would tell you something that they're going through and you can help each other. That's what we're supposed to do here on earth. We're supposed to help each other. If more people would step out of their comfort zone and help each other, and would you imagine what this, this place would be like to live on? I think we get so wrapped up in our own lives and our own situations that we fail to realize that um, the person next to us may just need a hug. They may just right. need somebody to listen. They may need just somebody to say everything is going to be okay. Because at the end of the day, everything is okay. And it always works itself out. Ladies and gentlemen, that's a wrap for our amazing episode with Tim Lodgin. And we are really pumped on the Sober is Dope podcast. Uh, we're inspired. We would love to offer you to come back on the podcast at another date to talk about your regimen, your fitness. And because we liked, we believe on Sober is Dope that life after recovery is a lot of beauty and greatness. And the, the tools that we use to stay stable, we could help others. And um, I'm into health. I'm like, right now, I'm fasting, I'm cutting weight, I'm trying to get back into, uh, I call it a video shape because I'm an artist and I have to perform and do videos and stuff. There but you go. I'm trying, I really want. Uh, you know, I want to take our recovery as a superpower now because when you're sober, that's a superpower. That's like you are as God, you are clear. Even on your worst days, you can have a migraine, a flu, and you're still clearer than a, ma a large majority of the world because you rely on nothing but yourself and yes. your higher power. Use that superpower to be creative, go forth and build, create. Another thing I will say to help you, because you're in early recovery and this helped me, I always tell people, they say busy tames the beast, but that's vague, right? Because you could be busy doing a lot of, getting in a lot of trouble. Creativity tames the beast because we look at God as the creator. God creates us, creates planets, creates moons and creates stars. And they tell us in the Bible, you were created in the image and the likeness of the creator. So what should we be doing? creating get back into your um innate talents if you used to be a drawer get out the easel draw yeah. if you want to sing sing oh my favorite one if you're really up there let's say you're 70 years old and you always want to be a rock star go buy your leather go get your guitar and go jam never let anyone stop you from your creative calling when you tap back into your creativity man you will never be bored. You'll never be preoccupied and you won't be ruminating on a bunch of negativity because you'll be too busy 
creating and making something beautiful. And we know after you do this podcast, you charge. Oh, I spoke to Pop today. I did something good today. I That's it. You go to bed. Today was a win, right? I'm sober. I did something. I got to speak to the great, you know, Tim Lodgen today, you know, U.S. Marine, MMA fighter, guy's the man, right? And hey, look, you are close to your fame. You said you wanted that, but in your recovery, you're finding that. People are flocking to you. Man, yeah. you're alive. Listen, make make yourself a promise. If you get jammed up, use the community. And the last thing I'm going to tell you, because I love you, brother, and I got 10 years on this, right? There's going to be times where it's going to be hard. And then you're going to feel like because you're speaking on these platforms and you're becoming this public figure that you can't be vulnerable in that way. That's even the time to lean in on it. Right. Because there's a new thing that's happening in the recovery space where we start to feel like we can't speak about our weaknesses because we said too much about our recovery in public. So the days when we are struggling, we tend to hide. We have to hide now from not just ourselves and our family, but the world. And then we're losing a lot of friends committing suicide because of that, I'm afraid. So use your platform to reinforce your recovery, but in any form of weakness, you call me up, brother, you call anyone up, your sponsor will be there for you. And if I'm in trouble, I'm calling you, Tim. All right. Absolutely. That's a absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> You're a brother for life now, man. I got to tell you, I'm done hiding, man. I've been hiding for 27 years. You know what right. I mean? I, I'm, an op- I'm open to whatever the world has to bring me, man. I really am. All right. All right. Well, on that note, everyone out there, don't give up on yourself. Use Tim's testimony as fuel to take yourself to the moon and back. I love you all. You listen to Sober is Dope. We are over and out. Peace.